You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. The time is 7am. It is 9th of March. And uh, you're joined here by me, Genevieve. I'm with two very exciting new members of Tuesday <laughs> Breakfast. I'm so excited to have them in the studio. Um, I've got Fung and Evie. Hello. Good Hello. morning. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> How are you guys feeling this morning? Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bit nervous, but good. Of course. Yeah, I was an absolute nervous wreck when I came in here for the first time. Um, but all right, we'll probably just go through what we have on the show. Um Pretty, pretty packed show as always. Um, first up, where I'm going to play some audio from the incredible interview that was done on Women on the Line, which is a 3CR uh, produced show um, that was played yesterday for International Women's Day. Um, it's with a uh, domestic violence survivor called Jay. And she speaks about her uh, personal journey and her attempts to hold her abuser accountable and also her public and political campaign to draw attention to the plight of the victims of police family violence offenders in Australia. Also, Evie has done an interview for us. Yes, with uh, Lizzie O'Shea uh, from Digital Rights Watch Australia, uh, just talking about the online safety bill that's been recently proposed. So that's awesome. a great interview. Yeah, it'll lead on really nicely from um, Lauren's chat uh, last week as well. Um, and then I've also done an interview with uh, Louise, Professor Louise Chappelle, who um, it's about, I mean, all of the huge debacle that's going on in Parliament and I guess in a broader sense sexual violence and um, uh, in the workplace in general in terms of how where we can go from here and how we're going to handle this um, huge topic uh, but we'll oh I should probably read the weather that would be helpful <laughs> um, today it's going to be top of 19 low of 13 um pretty rainy actually it's looking rainy and cloudy uh it was really drizzly when i left the house this morning very like spitty and a bit gross but um hopefully it clears up for the next few days and we'll be back with the news headlines just after this earth greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003 they're 100 recycled cards Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 
All right. So just starting off with the news headlines, um, I want to give a bit of an update about what's happening in Myanmar. Um, this is news that I've gathered just from um, Al Jazeera. So there's been a nationwide strike in Myanmar as anti-coup campaign intensifies and two protesters have been killed as shops, factories close in response to a call for a general strike to protest military coup. Uh, two protesters have been killed um, Myanmar as Myanmar's biggest trade unions began a nationwide strike in the latest attempt to pressure the country's generals to step down after seizing power in a coup last month. Uh, photos posted on Facebook on Monday showed the bodies of two men lying on the street in the northern town of Mietkinya. Uh, witnesses said they were taken part in a protest when police fired stun grenades and tear gas. Several people were then hit by gunfire from buildings nearby. Uh, one witness who said he helped move the bodies told Reuters news agency two people were shot in the head and died on the spot and three people were wounded. This is obviously coming in the light after uh, the coup that was um, uh, that was done on February 1st um, and these protesters are aiming to restore Aung, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's elected government to power. Um, in other news, and I was... Uh, I mean, it was too good not to mention, um, but uh, Meghan and Harry uh, did a pretty highly publicised um, interview with Oprah Winfrey that aired yesterday. Um, the couple who moved to the US a year ago um, talked about their experiences with the British monarch in interview with TV host Oprah Winfrey. Um, I guess some stuff that stood out... I'm not sure if you have an opinion on this or saw anything <laughs> about it. I've just read I'm just it. mostly just very interested by the British press reaction. Mm. Just just a barrage of articles about it. Some of them with like veiled threats in the headline. It's just very It's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. it's like sometimes I think about how, you know, obviously the tabloid press is crazy everywhere, but mm. in the UK it just seems like a whole nother world. Yeah, yeah. Is it the Sun or the one Yeah, of the Daily the, Mail. The Daily Mail, yeah. The Express. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, and even before the interview aired, I mean there were some hilarious um, memes circulating on social media about like the queen, what the queen's like, <laughs> queen kind of like, um, uh, God, what's the word? Um, I guess formulating some sort of, uh, plan to kind of <laughs> let, not get this interview out there. And it was just, yeah, anyway. Um, but there was leaked, I guess, information to the media that, you know, Megan was a bully and she, bullied the Duchess of Cambridge and she made Kate cry mm. on her or something saying like, <laughs> or like there was all these complaints against her from like, um, the people that were working for her. Um, that yeah, it's just at a very convenient time was leaked just before this um, interview aired. Um, but obviously one of the main things that came out of that, I think that a lot of people were talking about, um, was that there were concerns about how dark her son Archie's skin would be before his birth, uh, and that such worries explained why he was not given the title of prince. Um, obviously, Michael, whose mother is of colour and father is white, said she was naive before she married into the British royal family in 2018, but that she ended up having uh, suicidal thoughts and considering self-harm after asking for help but getting none, um, which is pretty... 
awful. That's really yeah. awful. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I generally, like, don't think about the royals on a daily no. basis, but <laughs> thinking about outsiders having to deal with all the weird yeah. tropes inside the royal family is really yeah. just seems like such a struggle and just a crazy thing to deal with or Definitely. think about. <laughs> they seem just negligible to me, like, just, uh, I don't know, a old school Kardashians. Yeah, that's the, the, original, <laughs> the original. The original That's the funny thing yeah. about the UK. Like, you know, like I think people don't want to think about how much, inf- well, they they want to talk about how the royal family doesn't have influence, but they still treat them like the Kardashians mm, def- of the UK. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they kind of just have a very celebrity status. And I think that that unattainability that I guess of being a royal and having all of these, I guess, ceremonies and stuff that people go and see is part of the, I guess, luster of why people Mm. still kind of look at them. But surely, I mean, this is absolutely terrible, but, like, the royal family, like, I'm not surprised. Like, they're just, yeah. Anyway, um, (laughs) another news. Um, Switzerland uh, has proposed to ban wearing the burqa and niqab in public spaces, Uh, Muslim groups criticise MOVE, which they say will further stigmatise and marginalise their community. Uh, Switzerland will follow now France, Belgium and Austria after narrowly voting in a referendum to ban women from wearing the burqa or niqab in public spaces. Just over 51% of Swiss voters cast their ballots in favour of the initiative to ban people from covering their faces completely on the street, in shops and in restaurants. Uh, the full facial veils will still be allowed to be worn inside places of prayer and for native customs such as carnival. I mean, this, uh, the fact that people are voting on something that doesn't impact them, doesn't concern them, doesn't affect them mm-hmm. is And yet terrible. I think people are still required to wear face masks um, to stop the spread of COVID-19. Yeah. So, that's and that, that's not part of the... Um, the ban. Yeah. So that's a really, really mm. good point. Yeah. Um, actually, it says, yeah, face coverings worn for health and safety reasons are also exempt from the ban. <laughs> so yeah. it's purely targeted. <laughs> yeah. Purely targeted. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, which is extremely disappointing. And just not like 51% of Swiss voters, like, Jesus. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's all I have to say with the news. I was going to mention an update on, I guess, all, I guess, the rape allegations, um, I mean, Morrison's reaction this week has been absolutely appalling. Um, he pretty much has said that uh, he pretty much hasn't been very vocal on it um, in general. I'm not going to say too much on it because um, some of the interviews do dive a little bit into this, but he pretty much uh, points it out to be of police concern now and that the police and justice system will take care of it. I think this is in particular aim um, at the allegations against uh, Christian Porter. But, um, yeah, there's been a lot of backlash about his, I guess, uh, unwillingness to speak about um, this in a, I guess, (laughs) heart-to-heart way or even in any way that shows any sort of compassion to any of the survivors involved in this. So very disappointing. Um, anyway, we're I'm just going to play a CSA and then we're probably going to go to a track, uh, but we'll be back very soon. 
Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture, and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377 3CR ensures that our voices aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station so it's a good way of supporting aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR community radio we're going to uh, listen to a song now, um, song called Therapy, which comes from June Jones's uh, self-produced second album, Leafcutter, which came out last month. June is a Nam-based singer-songwriter whose latest record explores many aspects of her experience as a trans woman uh, living with ADHD. Something that I 
that was uh, Therapy by June Jones from her latest album, Leaf Cutter. Um, she's got some events coming up in the next couple of months to celebrate her new album. So please uh, check her Instagram and Facebook for more details. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. We're going to play part of an interview that was done um, for a 3CR-produced show called Women on the Line uh, that aired uh, yesterday on Monday for International Women's Day. Um, The show was produced by Ayan and Anya, and they interviewed um, a woman called Jay, who uh, is a staunch victim survivor of police-perpetrated domestic violence, who is fighting for a safer world. Uh, Jay tells us in the interview about her personal journey and her attempts to hold her abuser accountable and also her public and political campaign to draw attention to the plight of the victims of police family violence offenders in Australia, lobby for systematic reform and collect statistical evidence to support her initiative and provide to politicians and the media. And she also discusses alternatives to policing that can keep victim survivors safe. We jump into a part of the um, interview where Jay starts to speak about her story and how she aimed to hold her abuser accountable. I am a survivor, victim survivor of police-perpetrated family violence. My ex was a 20-year veteran of Victorian Police and he was charged with 70 serious family violence offences. Um, he was convicted in 2020 and appealed. Um, and was convicted again of six consolidated charges. So they sort of made them representative charges. That included bashing me unconscious in front of my son, um, strangling me unconscious and causing a miscarriage, um, a lot of assaults on me, assaults on one of my kids and making threats to kill and hunt down one of my children, threats with a firearm, persistent breaches of an FAO. I could go on, but he was a bad guy. So that's my background. And when I went through this, um, I'm also a lawyer. I realised that the system was very broken and the system was very different. The investigation system for police wives is very different to the investigation system for anybody else whose perpetrator is not a police officer. And this shocked me that it was a different system and it was a corrupt system that stepped towards supporting the perpetrator and discrediting the victim. So I know if you want to change something, you have to get evidence. So I started FOIing. I started speaking to other victims, locating other victims. Other victims started locating me. Um, And that's how this campaign began. And it actually began in a refuge in Canberra when I was speaking to another New South Wales police wife who was in the same circumstances as me. And it snowballed from there and now become a national campaign for change um, involving the media, politicians and a lot of evidence that we've amassed, plus a research project that we're doing to capture the survivor voices to use to lobby police forces to change because they've been very resistant to change. And you've been around in the media for a while now speaking out about this issue. How has the response been so far? Um, The public response has been supportive. It has resulted in a bit of movement within Victoria Police um, now because of the amount of pressure that I've put on and the amount of evidence that I've gotten put forward to politicians. But 
it hasn't been the level of change we'd hoped for, but we always knew we were going to have to play the long game with this. It's going to be a long push for many, many years, and I'm prepared for that, and so are the other victims, because we don't want other women to go through what we've been through. But we've also, we also cop a lot of abuse, and I knew that as soon as I went public that I'd cop a lot of abuse. That's, that's the risk you take when, as a woman, you speak out on stuff like this. Mm. And, I mean, domestic violence and family violence has been on the agenda for such a long time, and one of the first things they tell you when you experience domestic violence or family violence is that you should report to police straight away, as if that's a very straightforward process. What's your <laughs> thoughts on that? I think the first thing is there's this misconception that going to the police makes you safer. It doesn't. It can actually make you a lot more unsafe. And if you're a police wife, it definitely does because they treat it like an officer down situation and they go protect their mate. Um, Not all, but a lot of them. Um, And, you know, I I think with the current debate about criminalising coercive control, and I won't go down into that burrow, I think there's this assumption that if you change the law and you issue pieces of paper that it will stop guys killing their wives and it won't it definitely won't and when I went to the police and they finally started investigating my ex's behavior got considerably worse considerably more dangerous considerably more life-threatening and we need to change the system to support women because if you want to change the law and start going down legal options you need to make sure you've got support for them and you also need to recognize that for some women, the law's just not an option and it's not going to help them, it's not going to save them, and neither are police. And when you reported what was happening to you to the police, so, you know, it's a situation where police were investigating police, essentially. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think, I think you can do it, but you need to have controls in place. And the problem with Victoria Police is they didn't. So when I came forward... My ex's station buddies, guys who know him really well, guys who knew me from social functions were the ones who came out. And, of course, they're like, they're a loved-up couple. He's a good guy. She's making it up. She must be trying to take the house. That, that was the assumption there, and everyone was focused on his welfare, his mental health. No one really cared about us. And then when it got... The way this investigation system works in Victoria for police wives is very different. So instead of going to a family violence unit where they've got specially trained detectives. And Victoria Police has done well in trying to improve that system in the Family Violence Command. We don't go through Family Violence Command. We go through Professional Standards Command. And a lot of women, like me, our files get sent to a uniformed guy in the same division as our perpetrator. And they didn't deal with issues of conflict of interest and they prioritised managing his welfare and his interests over my safety. So that's really, really problematic. That's going to result in women withdrawing complaints or not making them in the first place. And... Frankly, the only reason why I got all the way through and I was the first woman in five years to secure a conviction against a Victoria Police um, member for family violence, and that says a lot, the only reason I got that far was, A, I'm a lawyer, I know the system, and, B, I had an amazing employer who said I could work from Canberra. And so I left the state. That's how I could do it. And so many women, you don't have an... I had this middle-aged male boss who's like, this is crap, I'm calling this out, I'm calling this out for the boys. Like, this is, I don't, I don't want men to be like this. So he backed me. And guys like that should be given awards. Like, that's what you should do. But most people don't have a boss like that or don't have a, a career that's flexible enough that you can work remotely. And I've noticed that PTSD is sometimes cited as a contributing factor of police domestic violence. You know, the police officers have gone yep. through a lot and they sort of take it out on their partners. I wonder, is there a more, is there a better conversation that can be, had about the effects of PTSD and how the links between that and the violence that they enact? Definitely. And I have to put my hand up here and because I'm 
I think if you've seen my media work before, I'm actually very blunt about how I thought at the time. So when he was abusing me for years, I took responsibility for his behaviour because I thought it was my job to manage his PTSD and I genuinely believed that it was his PTSD that was causing him to abuse me. That was the loop I was in because I felt sorry for him. I'd see him go to a horrible job where there was a dead child. He would come home. He was traumatised. He'd talk about that incident, all the other incidents he'd been to where there were dead children, um, and then he would start drinking and then he would start abusing me. So I would make that link. What I failed to see until a long time down the track was if PTSD was causing him to hit me and to do all the other things, horrific things he did to me, why wasn't he acting up at work? And the, the most crystalline example of that for me was one of the incidents that had a fair bit of press, press when he bashed my head into a letterbox and knocked me unconscious in front of my child. Um, he then went to work. So he was he completely lost it with me. He punched me in the face. He did all of that. But then he went to work at Sunbury Police Station and none of his colleagues noticed anything different about him. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons his colleagues didn't believe the allegations was because they'd never seen that side of him at work. So if you have PTSD and PTSD is causing your offending, it's not something you can switch on and off. And that you, if you speak to most battered police wives, they will say it's his PTSD that's causing it or I thought it was his PTSD that's causing it. But that's the test because some of them, I think there is a link between the severity of the violence and mental health. But in those men, and I've spoken to some of those wives, they've got problems with professional standards command. They've got problems with their colleagues. They've um, acted up with the public and they behave consistently at home to the way they behave outside of home. And in that case, I think there, there is a link. But for most of us, there's not. It gets used as an excuse. And unfortunately, the courts accept it as an excuse too. Even in cases like mine, on appeal, the judge said, oh, I'm satisfied the PTSD caused the offending. But if that were the case, how could he go to work and act normal? How do you think police officers who use their partners at home as a punching bag can do effective policing? Are they able to do effective policing? Are they able to keep sort of some sort of unbiased view when it comes to policing communities? I don't think so, and I don't think so on two fronts. So the first is if you are a domestic abuser at home, we know what causes domestic violence generally is toxic masculinity. It's, it's views about seeing women as a chattel um, who should do what you say. So if you've got those kind of attitudes, you've got to wonder how you're going to handle a domestic violence caller. And I know with my ex, when he went to work after bashing me that time, he was dealing with family violence callouts. And you've got to wonder how he dealt with those. Is he siding with the perpetrator and thinking, gee, she's bought this on, she must be a rubbish wife? Or is he looking at the victim and what's actually happened? Because Victoria Police's family violence education program is actually pretty good. So they've got the awareness. But if you've got those toxic views you're the ones who are going to, to stuff it up or you're getting influenced by a man with toxic views who's the senior constable or the sergeant and so you're not issuing the family violence safety notices, you're not taking it seriously. That's the impact it has on society and it's, that's why I'm quite passionate about police-perpetrated family violence doesn't just affect us victims, it affects all victims because you could get this guy. Would you want someone like my ex turning up to your family violence call-out? Now, the second element for me is broader. In the research work that we're doing, one of the questions that we ask women, we ask them about whether they have toxic views, um, that their husbands had toxic, toxic views about women. And we ask, you know, did you have an issue? Did he have an issue when the female assistant commissioner got promoted? Did you know, they say it was just because she was a woman? All of that sort of stuff. There's a whole lot of questions we ask in there to tease that out. But we also ask about racist views. Mm. And I ask specifically the people in our area, which has a, a big um, 
African Australian population, what terms they use to describe the African Australian population. You've, I've found a really, really strong link between racist views mm. and the who are domestic violence offenders. And that's reflected in the US data too. There's a lot of research in the US on that. So police officers who commit family violence at home are much more likely to over-police minority communities and be racist and be sexist and prejudiced towards domestic violence victims. So you don't want these guys in the force. It impacts everybody. It impacts the whole of society keeping these guys in the force. And I would say it impacts adversely police forces because it affects your reputation. If you want to build bridges with minority communities, you don't want these guys going out in the van. Mm. And I suppose this is a... If you've just joined us, sorry, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast um, on 3CR. The time is 7.30 a.m., we're playing a um, interview that was done for Women on the Line, um, and it's an interview with Jay, who is um, a family violence uh, and domestic violence survivor, um, and she tells us about her personal story and her attempts to hold her abuser accountable. Um, I also just wanted to add a trigger warning. If this is bringing up um, anything that I guess might be um, of concern to you, then you can always get help. Um, and call uh, Lifeline. Um, that would be on one uh, three. Sorry, I'm just getting up the number now. One three one 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 four, or you can call one eight hundred RESPECT. That's one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two, which is the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service. I'm gonna uh, play the rest of the half of the interview now. The is a big question but what kind of structural changes would you like to see in the police force victoria specifically but also maybe even broader um the first change i would like to see and it's, it's something that i've said directly to victoria police is education's great training's great i'd like to see you have a victim informed training program for officer involved domestic violence for professional standards command and i'm happy to contribute to that and i know other victims will be too um, but training only gets you so far. Training doesn't change culture. Accountability changes culture. So you need to get rid of these guys. So Victoria Police can start disciplining these people, but they're also hamstrung. And I do feel sorry there are some actually really quite good eggs in Professional Standards Command who don't want these guys in the force. But it's really hard for them to get rid of them because of the Police Act. It's very difficult to sack and discipline a police officer. And also because of the Police Association Victoria, which is like the police union in the other states, they make it really hard to discipline those guys. So there's change there that needs to happen, sort of legislative change, the Police Act needs to be amended. In terms of the structural change, there's nothing in the Police Act that prevents these guys from being disciplined as soon as charges are authorised. But at the moment what happens is disciplinary proceedings do not start until someone's convicted. So my ex had been convicted, he could still access a gun, he was still a police officer. We were crapping ourselves because he'd been put on appeal bail, thinking he's going to come down and, sh- and hunt us down. We just fled. And then they decided to suspend him. And it's like, this is crazy. And when I would tell people, I know when I was telling an ABC journalist, she was like, what? And it's like, I'll show you the text messages. I can prove how the process happens. Mm. That needs to change. That's just a really easy fix, structural change, because there's nothing preventing them from starting the discipline process as soon as charges are authorised or early, you could actually start it at the intervention order stage. I mean, there are pros and cons there about whether you want to do it then or not, but I think definitely once charges are authorised, 
they should be suspended. And they're at higher risk then too because their career is potentially on the line, mm. unlike that don't tend to get disciplined. But you need to make the woman safe. So that's the first change I'd like to see. The second change I'd like to see is we're just asking for equality as family violence victims, not just in Victoria but in New South Wales and Queensland too because the system of investigation for us, as I said before, is different. We get dealt with by um, professional standards, by command. It gets sent out to a uniformed guy. He has to do it on top of his day job. It's not a priority. He thinks it's a rubbish family violence case. She's probably fitting him up. So you, you have an investigator who's not up to it, doesn't have time. We just want to be dealt with the same as other victims are. They go to family violence command. They get someone who's trained, specialised, does it as a priority, so that this get, doesn't drag on for a year the way mine did. My case came to police attention a full year before charges were finally authorised and all that time we were in and out of refuges and terrified and then for the whole year it was in court, he could still access a police gun and was still a cop and hadn't been disciplined. So that needs to change and they need, and one thing they have done as a result of my lobbying is that they do now have a conflict of interest check. So the guy who's dealing with your ex can't be in the same division anymore and can't know him. Now, you would have thought that's a pretty obvious thing. Yeah. But apparently, I mean, the change isn't deployed yet, but it is getting deployed as a result of my case and um, involvement of a regulator in it and the amount of just grit I've put into it. But that's something that it should have been fixed years ago and it does need to be fixed in other jurisdictions. So the structural changes I'm asking for are not expensive. The problem is that you have to have the political will and there's a lot of politics involved with dealing with police union too. Um, I want to talk about alternatives to policing to support survivors of family violence or victims of family violence. What do you think we could do instead of relying on police? Um, I would like to see a lot more funding for the refuge sector and for um, the domestic violence support services. Now, one issue that I've had in dealing with that sector is they don't understand that we we face much higher risks as domestic violence victims of police officers. And so going to police is not an option for a lot of us because, I mean, it happened in my case and it's you know, got a bit of publicity. My safety and escape plan got leaked. Um, the, my statements got leaked. Lots of information got leaked back to my ex. And when I complained about it, they said, oh, but that had to get leaked back to his, um, his colleagues on member welfare grounds so that they could manage him. They needed to know what you were doing and what you're up to so they could look after him. Now, when you hear stuff like that, would you want to report to the police? No. So I think what we have to do is find ways of keeping women safe that don't involve police. And one of those is making sure that we have a way to help them set up their lives interstate. We have a way to help them be somewhere safe and get strong enough. Because I think one thing people don't understand is that when you first go to the police about family violence, you don't go in a strong way. And quite often you don't, even, you don't want to be the bad guy because you're scared of him. So you want police to take out the intervention order. You don't want it to be you. You don't want to be seen to be the one who's snitching because you know you're going to cop it. And it takes a long time of being away from him until you feel strong enough to go, no, that's BS behaviour and you can't treat me like that anymore where you're strong enough to push back hard. We need to find a safe safe space for women where they can get that strength, where you can have a job, um, you can live safely away from your ex. And we don't have that at the moment, the way the refuges are set up. And I was lucky in that um, I'm from an ethnic community that was quite supportive of me. My ex-partner is not from that ethnic community, so they hid me within the community. And I could keep, like I said before, I could keep working and I was in and out of refuges, but that helped me a lot. But if you're not from a really strong ethnic community that supports you, it's really difficult. And I'd like to see the refuge 
network changed and the support network changed because the problem is you go to a refuge, you're not allowed to work generally. I had to get special permission from the refuge in Canberra to continue to work. And if I'd been in Victoria, I wasn't allowed to. And then you lose your job. So you, you need, we need to keep women being able to earn money whilst they're in a refuge. That's a big stumbling block. Mm-hmm. And I understand why you don't want them to work because they could be tracked by their ex, but there has to be a way to do it. Absolutely. And talking about this is obviously very heavy and I imagine re-traumatising and yet you're here campaigning loudly. Um, what keeps you going? Um, I have met so many victims in this interview project who, I mean, there's two answers. There's these other victims and they are so traumatised and when we um, speak, we both end up crying. Um, They've been through so much trauma, they've copped so much injustice Mm. and they can't speak and they always start the conversation and end the conversation the same of thank you for speaking up, please don't stop speaking up because you speak for us. So I do it for them because I know that I have a voice that is heard and they can't get heard. And there's some of them, there's, you know, they can't speak because of the family court. They can't speak due to other reasons. I, I can. I don't have a family court order preventing me from speaking. So that's why I do it. The other reason I do it, and it's much more confronting, is the strangulation event that resulted in the miscarriage. I lost bodily function control and... I was told when I was checked over in hospital that I'm lucky to be alive, that if you void like that, most women die and there's a minority who don't and you end up with either PTSD or a stroke or a brain injury. I'm lucky. I I just have PTSD. So whilst it's very difficult for me to speak, I feel that I have to because I got a chance at life and that was just random absolutely random and I'm going to take that chance and use it to argue for other women because I don't want a woman getting killed by a police officer in these circumstances. So I've had a lot of therapy to help me emotionally disengage when I'm doing interviews like this um, so that I don't re-traumatise myself too much. And that's been a deliberate tactic because I know to speak I have to be able to speak safely um, for myself and then advocate well for others. Yeah. And how do survivors get in contact with you if they want to share their stories or they want to join your work? Um, I've got an email, which is policedv at protonmail.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and I've got a pretty boring Twitter handle, which is, you know, police <laughs> DV victim survivor advocate Australia. Um, so people can DM, DM me there, but I always say to people, don't follow me on Twitter, just DM me. Um, Cause if you follow me, your perpetrator can find you cause I'm in plain sight. Um, but anyone who wants to participate in the research project can contact me there. We do do some referrals to CLCs where we can um, for people who are currently going through the system, but there's sort of very limited support we can do. But those who want to share their stories for the project, because I think for a lot of women, you know, you've, you've been denied justice by the police, um, you've been denied justice by the courts, or you haven't been able to report at all. But if you want your voice to be heard in reforms and, and to get some small positive thing out of a horrific circumstance and contribute to this. Like we're we're happy to to hear your voice um, in a way that feels best for you. So there's some who've contacted me saying, I want to be in your project, but not for another six months because I'm not strong enough. And so that's fine. And some want me to just keep in touch with them and let them know what we're doing so that they feel part of the project. And I'm happy to do that too. That was an interview on women in the line. Um, 
uh, produced by Anya and Ayan uh, at 3CR. It was an interview with uh, Jay, who is a domestic violence survivor um, and a staunch... uh, Sorry, a staunch victim survivor of police perpetrated domestic violence who is fighting for a safer world, um, telling her personal journey and attempts to hold her abuser accountable and also her public and political campaign to draw attention to the plight of the victims of police family violence offenders in Australia, whilst also lobbying for a systematic reform and collect statistical evidence to support her initiative and provide to politicians and the media. Um, I also wanted to mention if this has brought up anything that has been triggering uh, for you, please call Lifeline, which is on 131114, or uh, visit lifeline.org.au. Lifeline is a 24-hour hotline, um, and you can also call The Wire, which is uh, uh, Wire Women's Information on 1300 134 130. Uh, that's 1300-134-130. And Wire's phone service is available from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. We're now going to go to a song. Uh, This is Stay in Bed by Alice Skye.
so that was Stay in Bed by Alice Skye. Um, originally from Western Victoria, Alice Skye is a Nam-based Wegaya and Wemba Wemba singer-songwriter. Her dreamy song Stay in Bed was the second single released in 2020 and is, in her words, a love song to my friends and friends going through it together. Um, we're now going to go to an interview. So yesterday, Evie caught up with Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch Australia to talk about the online safety bill. In late December 2020, the Australian eSafety Commissioner released an exposure draft of what it calls the Online Safety Bill 2020. After receiving nearly 400 commissions from the public over the last two months, the bill was tabled in Parliament and referred to the Senate Committee a week after submissions closed and before these submissions were even made public. The Commissioner claims that the bill seeks to improve the online safety of all Australians, singling out children and women subject to image-based abuse, but could it prove harmful to vulnerable and overly policed communities online, including LGBTIQ organisations and sex workers? We speak to Lizzie O'Shea of Digital Rights Watch Australia to understand what the bill could mean for Australians online. Thanks, Lizzie, for speaking to us. I know there's a lot to talk about with this bill, so let's have a go at a brief outline for listeners that may not be familiar. So just as some background, can you explain what the Australian eSafety Commissioner actually is and um, what power this new bill gives her under the proposed Act? Yeah, great. I'm so glad that you're talking about this because this is a really important piece of proposed legislation. And if you've heard today some things about it and want to learn more, Digital Rights Watch actually has an explainer online about it because we've provided a submission to the consultation process. So you can read about our objections in full and some of the uh, the recommendations we've made instead. So the context is that the eSafety Commissioner is responsible for protecting people and keeping them safe online. And generally her focus has been on children in particular, um, making sure that children are protected from seeing harmful com- content, but also uh, working on things like bullying that occurs in cyberspace. Uh, and we've known about this proposal for a piece of legislation to give the Commissioner more powers for a little while now. It's been talked about for, you know, over a year really, and uh, we were waiting for it to be handed down. And what it does is it gives the Commissioner a broad set of powers to deal with content that might be considered harmful for children. Uh, and that obviously contains a lot of things in that particular statement, but in essence, it's using things like a classification regime that exists for things like film and television, applying it to online spaces and giving the commissioner the opportunity to take content down, to issue notices for um, for platforms to take down content if it might be in breach of that classification regime, for example. Um, it includes other things, but that's probably the primary uh, piece of uh, important aspect of this legislation that we've certainly put a bit of effort into analysing and, and critiquing. Um, so, you know, some of it is a very legitimate set of powers available to the Commissioner to deal with these problems because, of course, there is a lot of harm that occurs online, but we think there's extensive overreach in terms of the powers that are available to the Commission uh, without necessarily the right checks and balances that might um, give us comfort about how that power might be exercised. Fantastic. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, So many LGBTIQ organisations and sex workers and people who supply access to adult material online have made submissions and um, also open statements to the press and on social media saying that this bill could potentially push them off the internet entirely because of the chilling effect. Now, when you say chilling effect, what does that mean and why would this actually happen with this bill specifically? Well, the current regime that we have in place for classification of content 
often does prohibit um, many kind of things that many people consume online, including pornographic material that is probably considered commonplace, it would be refused classification. So it wouldn't be permitted to be sold. So a lot of a lot of um, adult bookshops, for example, do operate outside of the boundaries of the law. It's kind of something that's accepted that's been allowed to occur. Um, but that scheme is pretty outdated. You know, it was developed a number of decades ago, and it's imported into this particular legislative content context. And that gives the Commission powers to take down content that might be in breach of those classification requirements. So what that means usually is platforms, and we've seen this play out in other contexts, particularly the United States, for example, they tend to be quite cautious. So when a new regime is introduced like this, the people that they tend to crack down on is anyone they think that might have content that would be subject to a takedown notice. Uh, and, you know, there's some good things in the regime. So, you know, when material is not shared um, with consent, for example, there's a regime for taking down that kind of content, that's a perfectly legitimate thing, I think, for the eSafety Commissioner to be concerned with. But you can imagine that, that uh, platforms might be more concerned about being cautious in respect of who uses their platform, and they may end up being very broad brush in denying people access to those platforms, in particular people like sex workers, for example, if there's a risk that they might be subject to content um, takedown notices and, and, and fines associated with that if, if it comes to that. So that's the main concern, that if you set a regime that um, is very broad-based uh, and open-ended, it's not as though it's going to be applied only in the settings that we expect it to be, that in fact you know, platforms will take a more cautious approach and the people then who will suffer are people like sex workers who are doing, you know, legal consensual work in many instances. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that chilling effect for platforms will mean that those people get denied a platform. Yeah. So like, it's like the similar problems that are already happening um, online where Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts keep getting taken down of um, uh, minority communities and often for really spurious reasons. So it seems like we're going to see a lot more of that if this comes to pass. That's right. I mean, even in the regime itself, I don't think there's enough powers to appeal a decision made by a commissioner, for example, to issue a takedown notice. Uh, and that's pretty, pretty problematic alone. But even before that, I think we need to get to the point before that to, um, you know, think about uh, platforms essentially doing the work of the e-safety commissioner so the e-safety commissioner doesn't have to do it themselves. We do have to set pretty clear parameters for those platforms about what should we do think um, they should and shouldn't be doing in terms of denying people platforms or, or, or deleting accounts, um, because those are the people who are, are wielding considerable power. Not even it doesn't even necessarily need to get to the commissioner to do that. So if you think about law as a kind of soft tool that is encouraging certain kinds of behaviour, I think the audience we have to be thinking about is the platform rather than necessarily the commission commissioner herself. But um, yeah, there's not enough appeal um, right. There's not enough, um, and those appeal rights can take too long, for example. So mistakes can ma be made in terms of what content's taken down. And then you're really left with a situation where people who might have come to rely on a particular form of income or, or a platform for a particular purpose are then left out in the cold because the regime's been applied overzealously, are interpreted in that way by platforms. So what um, kind of amendments or exclusions do you think should actually happen to this bill? I know you mentioned that you've got an explainer um, on the Digital Rights Watch website. Mm. Um, are there suggestions that um, we can now make to the bill? I know that the, the actual submissions window is actually closed now, but um, I've, I figure like it, this issue is now actually in the wider community and people want to talk about it. 
Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity and this is where these kinds of changes get made. So it's actually critical time in the life of the bill. So a couple of things that we recommend is, for example, a sunset clause. So there's a chance to review how the system is working before it becomes uh, permanent and we get to have a reflection on that and, and figure out what needs to be revisited or changed. So that would be an appropriate amendment. There is also a recommendation there that we um, include others in an oversight board, um, like multi-stakeholder oversight board. So include people who might be affected by these powers to get uh, feedback and to check in on how it's working and provide oversight. Um, so that's that's an important thing I think the government could do, initiate uh, broader engagement from communities who might be affected to provide feedback on how it's working. And then, of course, that requires certain amounts of transparency and accountability, so knowledge about how takedowns are working, whether they're doing what um, was intended by the legislation or they're actually working in a way that wasn't intended so that that can be fixed. So those are the kinds of things that seem pretty obvious but are actually missing and we think the introduction of them would have an effect of making sure that you know the the powers that are introduced and given to the commissioner are actually going to do the job that we think they will because I think there is work for the commissioner to do in limiting online harm I just don't want to see a bunch of people get caught up in unintended consequences associated with these schemes and we allow legislation to slide through that is broad and expansive because we're justifying that on the basis of harm towards children and I've seen too often legislation justified in that way that has unintended consequences. So we think we should try and catch these things before they occur and, and that's what those recommended changes are directed to. Excellent. Thank you so much again for your time. Um, you can follow Lizzie on Twitter at, at Lizzie underscore O'Shea or Digital Rights Watch mm-hmm. at DRWAUS. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And we'll be continuing to provide input into this process. So we'll keep you updated on that. And to the extent that we start working with the broader community to petition and and advocate for change, you can be part of that too. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Evie. Uh, That was Evie talking um, to Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch Australia uh, discussing the um, new online safety bill. We'll be back with a song after this CSA. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. We're now going to cross to a song called Wildfires by Salt. Salt is a collective of British musicians whose music is rooted in R&B, but integrates a number of different styles, including soul, funk, Afrobeat and pop. The track Wildfires is from their 2020 critically acclaimed album Untitled, in parentheses Black Is. This powerful protest album houses a collection of funk, soul, spoken word and protest chants.
So that was Wildfires by uh, Salt. Um, and yeah, please check out their uh, 2020 album, Untitled Blackies. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You're on Tuesday breakfast on 3CR Radio. Um, The time is 8.02 a.m. We're going to go to um, an interview that I did with uh, Professor Louise Chappelle, who is a professor of law and political science at the University of New South Wales. Um, I just want to do a quick trigger warning for this interview. Um, We do discuss sexual violence and rape. So if this is something that um, you wanted to tune out for, just tune out for the next uh, 25 to 26 minutes. Um, And yeah. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, This is on 3CR Community Radio. You're joined here with me, Genevieve. And I have a very, very special guest on the show today, um, her name is Professor Louise uh, Chappelle, who's a professor of law and political science at the University of New South Wales and is also a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and an Australian Research Council Future Fellow. Louise's research interests are particularly around the areas of women's rights, gender, politics and institutions and comparative federalism and public policy. Uh, Louise is on the show today to discuss a recent media release um, stating that Parliament needs a code of conduct with sanctions, not more inquiries into sexual harassment, and also to discuss this topic of gender violence more broadly, obviously since the overwhelming news surrounding the topic in the last month. Hello, Louise. Thank you for joining us. Now oh, You're welcome, Genevieve. Nice to be here on um, the day after International Women's Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a very fitting, um, very fitting topic as well. Um, just in case I've missed anything, and just to give us a, our listeners a bit of an idea, um, just if you could get us to tell um, tell a bit about yourself, a bit of a background, and what you do at um, the University of New South Wales. Sure. Yeah. So as I think you've sort of already highlighted, my area really touches on uh, gender politics and law. So really it's about gender and power at at its centre. And I've also done a bit of work around gender and how it works in the construction field. And increasingly I'm doing some work around gender and um, medicine and health. So what's really interesting is that the interest in gender and gender justice questions have been at the heart of my research for the last 25, 30 years, starting looking at politics and parliament and then branching out to law, then construction and um, increasingly medicine. And what's really interesting is the similarities across all of those spaces. So I know today we're going to talk about um, bad behaviour in the parliamentary realm and uh, gender relations in the parliamentary realm. But I think what we're talking about does seem to um, apply in many other uh, parts of our society as well. Yeah, definitely. And um, on that topic, I want to dive straight into it. Just in your own words, I'd love a bit like your explanation into what you think is 
quite obviously gone wrong in the recent sexual violence and assault allegations. Um, a bit of an explanation on why you think this has happened and I guess what does this tell us about uh, the problems within Parliament in terms of dealing with this type of stuff? Thanks, Jennifer. Well, I, I would say that for me um, there's nothing new in what we've been hearing about in the last month or so. Um, I started doing work on sexual harassment in Parliament back in the 90s and I remember my first um, sort of publication touched on that back in 1994 around a police minister in the New South Wales Parliament who was sexually harassing his female staff. And I think what has changed in the last short while is that more and more um, victim survivors of this abuse are starting to come forward. So I don't think there's anything new in this behaviour. I don't think it's the latest crop of politicians that have been misbehaving. I think it's more that those who have experienced that are starting to come forward um, and feeling like enough is enough. I really get a sense that driving a lot of this willingness to come forward is an anger and a frustration about what little has been done. and very brave people coming forward to say this absolutely has to stop and we can see that with um, uh, Miss Higgins for example like she has just been so brave in her willingness to come forward but then when she came forward and the usual tactics start like some um, backgrounding about her boyfriend and all of these other things she stood up to that as well so she hasn't walked away when the old tactics of shutting down these conversations have been applied she's stood up to them and allowed space for other people to come in and join that conversation so um, yes I think I'd say tragically I don't think any of this is new um, I think it's fundamentally about power and about imbalances of power relationships, um, but that what is new is that people are starting to be more vocal um, about it, which is incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. And just touching on, I guess, of the inner workings of uh, the political system, especially here in Australia, you explained this really well in the media release and it would be would be awesome for our listeners to hear this as well. Um, why do you think Australia it is particularly difficult to find an agreement on the issue of sexual violence, especially in regards to the partisan political system? Yeah, so I think we've got a couple of interesting elements to our own political system that makes it different to others that even look similar to ours, like the UK Parliament or like the Canadian Parliament or something. One of those, I think, is our hyper-partisanship. So we've got these um, two really strong political blocks in the Liberal National Party and the Labor Party, and that they are both tra training grounds, if you like, for men behaving badly, pretty much, um, and that we haven't done much work in trying to shift and revolutionise those training grounds. So people enter politics already... Um, expecting that that sort of bad behaviour is going to be carried on. In fact, that's sort of the way that um, you climb up the ladder in a way or that women get disadvantaged already in those processes. And then I think once you're in Parliament itself, um, the growth and power of the ministerial office has really become a very uh, prominent thing in the last 20 years probably. 
Um, so they're, they're not a traditional feature of the Westminster parliamentary system. They're sort of much more an American style thing, but they've been picked up in, in Australia and to a lesser extent in the UK and Canada too. But I think the power of those ministerial offices that are really regulated very um, loosely by the parliament, but more um, sort of informally regulated by the uh, ministers of the day um, have been a real um, problem in terms of th this sort of behaviour getting out of control with no real sanctions to pull people into line. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely want to come back to, um, I guess, your explanation on the sanctions as well. But I also um, wanted to mention... Uh, just in regards to this conversation based around, you know, we need more workplace safety and like, you know, if we made the workplace safe, um, I guess, yeah. yeah, do you think this is harmful um, to centralise a conversation on this idea of creating a safe workplace? Yeah, I, I really do have problems around the safety element because um, this is really of a different magnitude, I think. Uh, safety, when we think of safety, we're really thinking of, uh, you know, for me, it's like the construction um, building site where people need their hard hats and their high vis and all of that sort of thing. Here, I think it's more about bodily integrity. I mean, it's it goes to the real heart of uh, a rights-based approach where um, your, your body and your... Um, ability to, to speak freely and so on, are being impinged by those around you. So it takes us much further than safety, I think. Of course, we all want to be safe at work, but we also don't want to be physically or emotionally abused. And that is a deeper problem. I think safety diminishes the um, real uh, seriousness of this particular problem and uh, puts it into the camp of um, a softer form of regulation when this really fits within the criminal justice realm, not the occupational work, uh, workplace and safety realm. So I do find that an uncomfortable um, discourse, really, to engage in when I'm, I'm thinking about these, these areas. Yes, there's some elements of safety, I suppose, about, um, you know, feeling comfortable about going to work because you've got to tolerate sort of low-level everyday sexism. But what we're having revealed to us here is much more serious than um, those sorts of issues, I think, and we've got to see it for what they are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. And I mm. think, unfortunately, it's something that um, the PM and um, I know that even the Treasurer, Dress Frydenberg, uh, you know, supported obviously Christian Porter um, and Morrison continually justifying that, you know, the police and the court of law is suffice in labelling, you know, this case as closed. Um, right. And to my knowledge, I don't think that the police completed a full investigation um, or if they even interviewed anyone. But I guess in your own words, how do you think this this particular thing, like the our prime minister dealing it, with it in this way and justifying it in this way, how do you think this perpetuates sexual violence and how does, does this impact survivors? 
So I do want to talk about this particular case because I think there's so many elements about it that are quite legally complex but also are not yet fully fully known. Of but I want to talk about that argument more generally of, about rule of law. And I think this point's been made by some very good, particularly women journalists in recent days, is that the rule of law is more than just what the police decide. Uh, the rule of law is there to protect um, people uh, from being falsely accused and for having their day in court and for being recognised as being innocent until they're proven otherwise. And that's really critically important. But the other side of rule of law, um, and it's a point I think Annabelle Crabb, the journalist, has made, is that it's also there to protect victims who uh, feel as if the law hasn't protected them, that the regulations that have been created to protect them have not been put into place fairly. And I think that's what we're seeing here. The Prime Minister is seeing um, rule of law in very, very narrow terms, which is only about um, the accused and only about using police investigations, where I think others of us, and I would count myself as one of these people, think that in any of these cases, we've got to ensure that victims' rights are also upheld and that the rules that exist on the books to protect victims also have to come into play. Um, and that there may well be non-legal avenues to address these sorts of problems. Um, and we have examples of where other allegations have been addressed through other types of committees, not through Parliament, um, just to be able to get to the bottom of some of the underlying questions here. And it seems like the Prime Minister has um, absolutely ruled that out um, and does not want to enter into a process that may well ensure that the victim's voice um, as well as the accused voice is fairly heard in this particular case. So it's, it is complex, but I think that the, um, the weight of our um, rule of law system in this, in, a, in and around sexual assault more broadly in our legal system really does seem to protect the accused more than those who um, claim that they have experienced sexual assault and sexual harassment. Yeah, for and sure. And we've seen that again. Yeah, yeah. Look yeah. at all the cases that have been in recent years and um, those who have um, said that they've experienced it have none of them, you know, the high-profile cases, as far as I know, have been successful. Definitely. Which tells us something's not Definitely. And especially at a, I mean, I think at such a highly publicised level, I mean, it's even enough to say that the cases that do get heard and do get publicised are usually at um, the top level. So, you know, if Me Too taught us anything, it was that, you know, wealthier, white, uh, you know, sexual uh, violence survivors get heard over the old alternative but um especially um it would i'd really want to go into i guess where we can go from here um especially yeah. to break down you know how can we address this issue and also like um 
to break down what you mean by, you know, a code of conduct with sanctions, um, that would mm. be, yeah. Yeah. Before we do that, Genevieve, can I just make a point that um, I also want to recognise that it's not only women that experience this sort of sexual harassment and abuse and that in my own research that we've found um, trans and non-binary people and others, people who don't fit the norm basically, are those who are really vulnerable in workplaces. And we really found this really found this out in the construction sector and I've got a, a very close colleague who I write with, Natalie Galea, who's just also finished a report actually on LGBTIQ issues in the construction sector. And she really found very similar things that we had found in our joint study on women in that realm. And I imagine if we looked at that in the parliamentary realm, we'd also see a similar thing. So there, there are norms of behaviour and the norms suit those who are in power and anyone who doesn't fit those norms are likely to be the ones most vulnerable to these sorts of abuses so um and often it's harder for them to come forward mm. to uh, call it out as well because it's you know the stigma that gets attached to these sorts of behaviors is so profound so yes i'm very happy to move on but I just wanted to make that clear because the discussion around it really does seem to be this male female men women sort of um, conflict and I want to say I, I see it as much broader than that and I see yeah. it as power holders and non-power holders and in this realm too we've seen a lot of women behaving badly in terms of how they haven't protected staff they've basically upheld sort of the masculine um, toxic norms that we need to break so anyone can use those norms um, it's easier for men to use them but women can use them too um, and those who are able to express their power so that's just a, an aside no definitely thank, um, you for, thank you for clarifying that that was really important so can you just remind me those <laughs> other two that's okay. Um, just breaking down, I guess, what you mean by what would what a what would a code of conduct with sanctions look like? Yeah. Um, in addressing yeah. this issue, yeah. So one of the things I think we have to make sure, and I was very pleased to see this in the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's terms of reference for her report that will be being undertaken and she'll report in November, is that it's going to have wide coverage. So it's not just about um, MPs, um, so members of parliament and their behaviour, but it's also going to look into um, parliamentary offices. It's going to look from everyone, from, you know, cleaners and all staff in and around the parliament, which I think is really, really important because uh, we don't know how far and how wide and how deep this problem actually exists. And so being able to... Um, uh, look into that is really important. I think another protection here um, in in any report and and developing any code of conduct is also enabling people to protect their anonymity. So currently the rules as they exist um, don't allow people to come forward, don't guarantee that those who come forward can have their um, anonymity protected. And that has been such a... Um, break on people being willing to come forward because they're the least powerful, they come forward, then they're bullied 
further in the workplace and it's usually them that leave, not not the person who has been involved in the bad behaviour. Mm. So we would want to make sure that that is protected too. But what I would really like to see is very strong sanctions included here. So it's all well and good to say people should behave in a particular way, they should be respectful, they should, you know, not harass or bully people and this is what harassment and bullying means. We need sanctions to say, if you do act like that, this is what's going to happen to you. And whether that's party disendorsement, whether that's being stood aside where an investigation takes place to um, under, you know, decide on um, the, the uh, broader sanction that's going to apply, that you can be dismissed from Cabinet, you can be dismissed from the Parliament itself if that behaviour is found um, to have occurred. So I think it's really important that we have sanctions, but then I think we really have to have a way to enforce those sanctions. So who is the one who's going to make the decision in the end that this uh, behaviour is unacceptable and that the punishment that has been decided upon is going to be enforced? For, for me, that can't be the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister of the day is going to want to protect his or her own ministers. Uh, it could bring on a political crisis as it currently is um, and it just won't work very effectively. It has to be done independently. So we need to set up some sort of body that has no stake in what's happening in the day-to-day -day operations of Parliament House, people who have experience in this, you know, former judges, um, former um, sex discrimination commissioners, whoever it might be, need to be there and have be given the power to dismiss those people when there's some evidence um, or to hand over um, that evidence to... Um, the rightful um, legal authority, whether it be the police or whoever else. So this can't just be um, a gentleman and gentlewoman's agreement that we should all behave better. And they're the sorts of code of conduct that we've currently got in place. We actually need something with teeth and yeah. with uh, the, and someone with the power to apply that. And I think that um, will upset the power structure. I think if people see that acting in that particular way is going to destroy their political careers, they might think again before they um, behave in that particular way. So that's really important. But I think we've also got to filter down, as I said earlier, to the um, political parties themselves and make sure that they are introducing their own systems as well. I understand the ALP has been working on something like this, um, but the Liberal Party and National Parties fall so far behind on all of these gender issues, whether it's around quotas for representation or um, whatever it is, and they tend to blame the women themselves for not, not being good enough rather than looking at the bad male behaviour that's going on. Definitely. So the power holders have to set up rules that are going to limit their power and that's going to be the challenge. That's going to be the challenge here. Yeah. Because they don't like to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and just uh, just in the last couple of questions that I have, 
I mean, I watched the Grace Team National Press Conference. Um, thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, and you know, something that really, I guess, stuck out to me that she said uh, she kind of directly asks uh, the media to be more considerate of uh, sexual violence survivors. And I think she states that you know, using survivors' stories as pretty much commodification—sorry, mm. excuse me—commodification is exploitative. Um, and I guess this is something that is lost in translation when sexual violence enters the news cycle. Uh, do you think yeah. the media should, you know, take responsibility as well for this? Or is there any way that could be addressed um, when it comes to this issue? Look, I, I saw her speech as well and I was equally impressed, with, particularly with that point. You know, she was in a room of journalists and she really called them out and she's had that first-hand experience. And... I thought you could have heard a pin drop when she said that because they realised that um, they were being exploitative of of her story and, and others' stories. And so I, I do think there has to be greater emphasis in training journalists about um, the way in which their questioning can affect survivors themselves. And I think the best way to learn about that is, as she said, is to listen to the survivors, you know, talk to the survivors and find out what they want to say um, rather than asking them to relive traumatic experiences, which um, uh, is just another example of re-traumatisation as it is when they have to retell their stories in court or anywhere else. So I think like all parts of society, um, journalists need, uh, teachers counsellors, uh, people need to think uh, more carefully about how their uh, questions impact on the survivors themselves. And I think what we need to do somehow, and I don't have the answer for this, is to create the spaces where those survivors feel comfortable enough to say this is what's helpful and this is what is not helpful. So having someone like Grace as Australian of the Year is very powerful in just alerting people to what what is absolutely unacceptable behaviour um, and what is re-triggering and re-traumatising for them. Um, but yeah. clearly it's a, it's a huge issue and, and I have felt so... Um, sorry and sensitive towards those who have experienced this trauma in the last couple of weeks. Um, everyone around me has been talking about it and how mm. traumatising it is, which gives you a sense of just the absolute um, scale of the problem that we're dealing with because so many people can relate to this. From Definitely. minor incidents through to major incidents. And I think they're on a continuum. You know, really, I think unless we stop the micro small behaviours, we're not going to get to stopping these large ones either. That was an interview um, with Professor Louise Chappelle. Um, uh, we're coming to the end of our show now. We've had a pretty jam-packed show. Um, spoke to, uh, well, Evie spoke to Lizzie o, uh, Oshai and we also played Women on the Line, um, spoke to Louise uh, Chappelle um, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, have a good rest of your week. Stay tuned. We've got Accent of Women coming up, uh, presented by Giselle Hanna. She's put together an International Women's Day um, special this time, um, talking about Filipino women specifically. Um, but, yeah, 
Thank you. He had to Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.